Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today we start off this special one-hour edition of the show with a surprising story about student journals from the 1800s from what is now Barringer High School in Newark that are headed to the Library of Congress. In the early 19th century, teachers, they were picked for their size more than their educational background because they had to be big, big enough to handle these kids. WBGO's Gary Walker chats with legendary bassist Rufus Reed about his upcoming Lifetime Achievement Award from Wharton Arts. It's the feeling that I think that I am able to put on the bandstand. I'll chat with seven-time Grammy Award winner and two-time Oscar nominee, Terrence Blanchard. There was something that Herbie Hancock said after Hurricane Katrina that floored me. He said, you know, New Orleans has been the cultural center of the country for decades, for generations. All this and more coming up on the WBGO Journal. The Library of Congress is getting an historic donation from Newark's Barringer High School. Handwritten and illustrated journals from students in the 1800s when the school was known as Newark High School. 82-year-old Sal DiGerlando was an art teacher there from 1965 to 2010. He says the journals, unbeknownst to anyone, were locked in a safe. One day in 1969, their last chapter was almost written. Well, we had the combination of the safe, and so they were going to throw it out, and he said, no, I want to find out what's inside it. And so they opened the safe, and there they found these, these journals so they could have been destroyed. He was Pat Restaino, the principal at the time, who saw the safe being wheeled away. Restaino first considered sending the journals to Rutgers, but there was no climate-controlled location there for fragile pages, so they're headed to D.C. this summer. The students wrote and illustrated their journals, giving us a glimpse into what their lives were like as school kids in the 19th century. Deidre Lando says the journals tell stories like this one. This class took a class trip to, uh, to the village of Belleville, and along the way, they found a stray horse, and the teacher got on the horse, and then the kids walked to the village of Belleville. Fascinating. The former arts teacher stressed the journals tell tales of students' life back then, when bad behavior was not tolerated. They got flogged. The flogging was, was, was the way they did it. In the early 19th century, teachers, they were picked for their size more than their educational background because they had to be big, big enough to handle these kids. DiGerlando and others have been working to digitize the journal since 2011, so the originals can go down to Washington. That should happen this summer. Hello, folks, and welcome to the WBGO studios. I'm Gary Walker, and I've been at WBGO for decades. When I first started there in the early 1980s, there was this recording that we couldn't play enough of, and it was called Perpetual Stroll, and it was a recording by Bassmaster Rufus Reed, a trio setting with pianist Kirk Leitze and drummer Eddie Gladden. And when I realized perpetual stroll was anything but a stroll for Rufus Reed, it was, it was more like a marathon. Now consider he's running this marathon with the largest instrument in jazz and the size of which is only eclipsed by his body of work that includes Eddie Harris. Stan Getz, Kenny Barron, and thousands of others. Literally, he's made 500 recordings. Thad Jones, Mel Lewis. And on that note, when Thad Jones decided to leave the William Patterson University, he turned the reins over to Rufus Reed, who became the lead educator there for over 20 years. So jazz education, an integral part of his life, considering his book, The Evolving Bassist, is a primer for not just bassists, but musicians of all kinds. And he's going to be acknowledged for that body of work with a Lifetime Achievement Award, even though those achievements are anything but over. On March the 7th, uh, the folks at uh, Wharton Arts are going to have their big gala in Woodland Park, New Jersey at the Westmount Country Club, and they are going to honor Rufus Reed, and it, what an honor it is to sit here today and talk to a man that when Dexter Gordon decided to come back to this country, 
He recorded two outstanding records, and the call went out to get bassist Rufus Reed for both of those records, and what an honor it is to chat with Rufus Reed. He and myself and his lovely wife, Doris, had the chance to bond over the Bermuda Triangle during uh, James Moody's 75th birthday celebration. You remember that? Here was Rufus on stage playing the bass and holding on to the piano. Remember that night? <laughs> uh, wow, it's really great to see you. And uh, it's been a long time since we've actually been in each other's company. That's great. Yeah. But I've been in your company through recordings, you know, being yes. the Elizabeth Catlett project that we'll talk about and also your other projects, including uh, a recent project that was actually done a couple of years ago with you and pianist Sullivan Fortner. And it's called It's the Nights I Like. And I can't think of a solo performance of Sophisticated Lady on the bass that I enjoyed so much as your performance on this recording, sir. Just oh, wow. magnificent. Thank you so much. I, I love that song. And... I always tell people I wish I wrote it, but it's so beautiful, and I've been trying to keep it under my hands with on the as a solo bass feature, and uh, uh, it worked. It seemed to work out really well on this recording. It's working out indeed, man. Now you have some similarities with your good buddy Eddie Harris, who gave you one of your first professional gigs when you got out of the military and went to Chicago. But right. just like Eddie Harris you kind of flourished within the militaristic music scene. And when you first entered the Air Force, you were a trumpet player. When you came out of the Air Force, you were a bass player. <laughs> what was that transition all about? And what was the inspiration to switch from the trumpet to the bass? Well, quite honestly, the bass chose me, I, although I, you know, I was going to get drafted. There was a foregone con conclusion that I was going to get drafted or go to college or get married, and I didn't want to do any of those. And uh, at, particularly at that time, I was I was I was seventeen, and my mother had to sign for me, so I was pretty young at the time. And uh, but the trumpet, I loved it, I thought, and then I played in, in this little band in high school. And we, every time we took a little break, I would just go over to the bass because they laid it down on the floor and just touched it. And, uh, and I just liked the way it felt, you know, I said, wow. So I think that's uh, in retrospect, that's my uh, infatuation for the bass. But my time in the military was so good. When I look back, the music, uh, I've met some incredible people who just kind of molded me kind of, uh, and just put me in the right direction. And I began to teach myself the bass because I just liked the sound of it and what it did. I didn't know what I was doing. My ear guided me through that. I could read really well. Uh, um, uh, treble clef and all that because I was a trumpet player and the schools in California were really good in terms of skills and things of that nature so I feel really good about that but the uh, I had a lot of time on my hands in the military and uh, I be I utilized that time teaching myself how to play and then my first real gig was uh, on the bass uh, was in Montgomery Alabama at this club and this gentleman by the name of Al Stringer who used to he played organ but he was a tenor player as well and he was in an army band with Cannonball and and Matt Adderley and, and the guys like that I I found that out later because you know at that time I didn't even know who those people were um, uh, and then I began to he just began to show me things on the bass and then he said okay you got that uh, don't mess it up anymore, you know. <laughs> so he was really on my case. And I was there for about a year and a half and then moved to Japan. And that's when it exploded because that's when I saw Duke Ellington live, Modern Jazz Quartet, Horace Parlum, Philly Joe, uh, Buddy Rich, Louis Belson, 
Toshiko was still playing with Blue Mitchell and all. And man, I just said, what is that? And then I saw Ray Brown with the Oscar Peace and Trio, and that was it. I said, that's what I want to do. <laughs> and I haven't looked back since. I, of course, I didn't know how difficult it was to do what Ray was doing, uh, but I, I, uh, it was amazing. Now, when you talked a second ago, you said, you know, I liked the way it felt. And these are words that you impart to students in your travels around the world. You're going to be going to England soon to the Guildhall Jazz Orchestra, uh, their uh, uh, school there. You're going to be uh, the artist in residence for a week. You're going to be performing your work, your work. But when you talk to the students, one of the things that you impart to them is when you're playing the bass, listen to your body. What does that mean? Well, you know, uh, to me, it's it's intuitive. I think I think even when people don't even think about it, and they are gyrating, their foot is padding or their neck is moving because the it's the feeling that you you get from the music, and that's all I really know. And if I uh, can't kind of connect with that. I, it's not connecting with anybody else either. And so the feeling, because technically people are playing some unbelievable things nowadays. On a, I call it digitizing uh, the music. Um, but if they can somehow, if they can do all that and still have a good feeling, more power to them. You know, and they have such a fantastic teacher in yourself because not only did you appreciate Ray Brown and Duke Ellington and the modern jazz quartet, but you were part of so many historical recordings. I'm thinking of, you know, Dexter Gordon and Gene Ammons are one of my favorite J.J. <laughs> Johnson recordings were those two nights, Quintergy and Standards, that were captured live at the Village Vanguard in New York City. Talk about energy coming off the stage. Listen. Oh, we didn't have a choice. JJ came to play, and boy, we had to keep playing. I mean, Dexter Gordon, he with this huge sound, he just came to play, and we had no choice. Stan Getz came to play. He played beautifully, so we had no, you know, I've I've uh, been very blessed to uh, and fortunate to play with people who demanded to play ex with excellence and. Of course, if you didn't, you weren't there anymore, you know, so it was that simple. Uh, and uh, I've, like I say, uh, uh, it's the feeling that I think that I am able to put on the bandstand uh, and I talk about it, it's the essence of the group. The essence is, is what I, that's all I really know really well. You know. it's, is, is it, it's not really something that can be taught, or can it be? It can be taught, and it, it can creep in through osmosis, I think, over a period of time, if the people really want to do it. But see, people mistake the um, something perfect. The, music isn't perfect. There's, it's a it's it has the things that we listen to that we wish some of the down home guitar blues or bb uh, king or or it, it, they're not talking about anything perfect it's just a feeling and uh, everybody that i know that i've grown to know and personally i mean as precise as Ray Brown and, and a powerful projection, he was still having fun and he was still messing with it. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to do the exact same thing each and every time. I'll, I'll never forget because Ray Brown told me, he said, uh, you know, we're in the back, but you have to, you have to stay up front. And when he first said that for me, I wasn't quite sure what he meant. But then it's about the way that he would play. His notes would actually engulf the bandstand. And if the 
front line was shucking or whatever, his bass lines would just kind of take over, yeah. you know. And uh, and I, but because of his fulfillment, it was really the way he fulfilled the music. He just made anybody he played with really sound good. And, and that's know, what I strive to do. You know, for bassists that I've talked to, they say, you know, that initial, that initial relationship starts with your musical relationship with the drummer. You always have to be listening. And that relationship for you turned into a co-led group with the wonderful drummer Akira Tana. Yeah. Those of you that remember uh, the the wonderful recordings from Tana Reed, that was had to be a special time in your life. It very very much so. We had uh, a good ten years. We still uh, have our business uh, together, but we haven't played together as a as a group in, in over twenty years or so. Uh, and but we are still in touch. Uh, and when we played, we never talked about the music because we it, it just felt whatever we did it felt real good you know he said that felt good you know we just did what we did and said wow okay that's good so we kept it in and discovery yeah. and discovery comes out of that i mean you you exactly. referenced a minute ago you said you know don't be so married to the discipline because right. then you won't find that new street that you've never <laughs> been down before you that's won't true. see that tree-lined street <laughs> It turns out to be one of your favorites uh, right. in, in the in the months ahead. We're chatting with Rufus Reed. He's going to be honored on March the seventh at the Wharton Arts Gala, at that's uh, going to take place uh, in New Jersey at the Westmont Country Club. You can find out more, by the way, at WhartonArtsGala.org. And what an honor it is uh, to chat with with Rufus here today on uh, WBGO Studios. Now earlier. I referenced uh, the Elizabeth Catlett project, Quiet Pride, which to me is a real standout in that whole attitude of don't let discipline be your directive. Look outside the box. And for you, you found it in a sculpturist. Boy, did I ever. And, and uh, you know, I always enjoyed going to the museums and looking at, at, at photographs and paintings and sculptures and things but you know uh, but when I had an opportunity to to uh, look more closely and then I got a commission to to I said well but they said well if you're gonna do the com apply for the commission you have to have a reason you know you have to do something and I had looked at a book of Elizabeth Catlett and her sculpture just kind of popped off the page. And I said, well, this, maybe I'll do this. Behold, uh, it it ended up being uh, an incredible experience because I got a chance to meet her. My wife and I had an opportunity to go to Cornavaca, uh, Mexico, to actually spend a week with her, uh, uh, and that in itself was an experience uh, of seeing how another artist, a world class artist, functions in the house was just. Just beautiful. She was. She reminded me a lot of my grandmother, and uh, I met her when she was uh, ninety-two. I think it was. She came to the Sweet Basil to hear me and Kenny Barron and Victor Lewis on the late set, you know. And she was in a walker, and I said, "Wow!" Because uh, her sons are very creative. Uh, uh, one's a drummer here in New York. You know Francisco Mora, and and she's got a, also a uh, son who's a filmmaker in Mexico, and also uh, another sculptor and painter in in Germany. So I mean, the, the family was amazing. Uh, yeah, that was that that has taken me into a whole nother place, 
to write music inspired uh, by another art, you know. And because of that recording in particular, I was fortunate enough to visit the Montclair Art Museum, where her work was was uh, was exhibited for a time. We're chatting with Rufus Reed, who will be honored on March the 7th, uh, and he'll be honored at the Westmount Country Club. It's the Wharton Arts Gala, and it's going to take place in Woodland Park, New Jersey, and you can find out more at wartonartsgala.org. You have done so much over the course of your career and worked with so many different people in so many different settings. Is there a setting that is out in front of you right now that you're looking at that you would like to explore? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, I'm writing a lot of music nowadays, more and and that's kind of conflicting with my playing uh, because they both require a lot of time and uh, so there's uh, to in order to keep you know keep my chops together i need time to keep practicing and then to compose you've got to have time to just contemplate and uh, nothing else can can distract you so that right now is uh what i'm i'm into uh I, I love the process of composing i'm intrigued i've been very fortunate as you know to play and record with some of the greatest composers on our planet you know benny Golson and slide hampton and jimmy heath and dad jones and uh, bob brookmeyer i said oh how do they do that stuff is it easy or hard for you to compose? It's not easy. I have to work at it. Uh, uh, meaning, uh, it, things come slow to me because I never studied composition, whatever that means. Uh, I never studied it academically. And so I just buy books or ask questions and watch people. And, um, it, uh, but I have a lot of stuff in my head just learning how to get it out and uh these are the things that i've been really dwelling on these last several years uh and enjoying it great and for some reason my music is resonating with a lot of people and to be honored with this uh, wharton arts organization for a lifetime achievement i guess you know at one point i didn't even i don't really think about it but obviously I'm being observed. And when I think about it, yeah, I guess I did that. I forget when it was, but you know, things, uh, I don't have time to think about what I did. You know, that's gone. I'm trying to, to move on and, and I still have the passion to play the music the best as I possibly can. You can see Gary Walker's entire interview with Rufus Reed on the WBGO Facebook page. If you enjoy the kind of interviews you just heard from Gary and the news stories that you hear on the WBGO Journal, we're asking you to just take a moment right now and make a pledge of support to your public radio station, WBGO. It means so much to us and spread the word of great jazz and information on this radio station. Take a moment. Call us at 800-499-9246 or simply go online from anywhere in the world and make a pledge of support. You determine the financial value of this radio station in your life, but make a pledge at WBGO.org. Thanks. Let's get back to the show. Fifty years ago, a man in western Massachusetts destroyed a weather tower erected to gather data for two proposed nuclear power plants in the town of Montague. That act of civil disobedience ignited what became a nationwide movement to stop the construction of nuclear power plants. WBGO's John Kalish reports. It was George Washington's birthday, February 22, 1974. On that cold, clear night, a member of the communal farm where Sam Lovejoy lived drove him to the Montague Plains where Northeast Utilities had erected the 500-foot tower. Lovejoy had visited the site several times before and knew that the inch-thick steel guy wires stabilizing the tower could be loosened with a crowbar. 
The wires were controlled by a piece of hardware known as a turnbuckle. I undid one and it didn't tip over. So I undid two and it didn't tip over. And I undid three and it didn't tip over. And I'm working on the fourth one and I'm really paranoid because the tension on this thing is so tough. All of a sudden it let go and the cables went bangity boom, crashing against the tower and it pulled itself over. The tower went down at around 2 a.m. Lovejoy walked to a nearby road and flagged down a passing police car. The cops gave him a lift to the station where Lovejoy presented a typewritten four-page statement taking responsibility for the tower's destruction. He handed the statement to the desk sergeant. He would read a sentence and look at me and then read three more sentences and look at me. And the second page, he was sort of scanning it a little more. And the third page, he was like, holy cow. He said, did you write this? I said, yeah. Is this your signature on the last page? I said, yeah. He said, you know, I'm going to have to arrest you. Lovejoy was charged with destruction of personal property, a felony that carried a five-year prison sentence. He represented himself in the trial where expert witnesses testified about the dangers of nuclear radiation. Lovejoy was acquitted on a technicality because the tower was considered real property, not personal property. But his stand against nuclear power reverberated around the country, and a Georgie lived at the Montague Commune with Lovejoy. It was like ringing the bell or Paul Revere. It was really saying, watch out, this thing is too dangerous, and we're going to stop it. It was the beginning of a movement. Lovejoy barnstormed the country for three years speaking out against nuclear power. Here he is at a 1978 rally opposing two reactors proposed for Jamesport, Long Island. Let me tell you, there is now in every village, hamlet, town, city, anti-nuclear organizing going on everywhere all around this country. In the early 1980s, Lovejoy worked for Muse, a group of rock stars that raised money for the anti-nuclear movement. At the age of 40, he went to law school and later took a job with the Massachusetts Department of Fish and Game, acquiring land for recreation and endangered species habitat. His fellow civil servants were aware of his famous act of civil disobedience. One guy said to me after I did get the job, he said, you know, I'd really appreciate it if you don't screw up. You said I was on the interview committee, and I sort of told him, you know, you're not crazy like it looks like on paper. You know, you're not going to be knocking over any more towers, right? And I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> there was a particular moment in time where a particular action made eminent sense. Lovejoy and others at the Montague Commune played a pivotal role in organizing the Clamshell Alliance, a New England anti-nuclear coalition. The nuclear plans proposed for Montague were canceled in 1980. Other plans to build reactors were scrapped in Oklahoma, Ohio, Florida, Indiana, and California. Last week on the 50th anniversary of the tower toppling, the Shea Theater in Turner's Falls, Massachusetts, was sold out for a celebration of Lovejoy's act of civil disobedience. The mostly gray-haired crowd of close to 400 included some of the people who lived on the commune with Lovejoy back in 1974. Dan Keller was one of them. He and another commune member, Charles Light, made a documentary about the infamous act titled Lovejoy's Nuclear War, which was released in 1975. We had no intention of really making a documentary. Sam knocked over the tower and the next day we figured, oh, all the news crews will be up here from Springfield and Hartford filming this crashed wreck. Nobody showed up. The utility company imposed a blackout on news about Sam knocking down the tower. So we said, well, there's nobody filming the damn thing. They're going to clean it up, and then there'll be no evidence. So we went out and filmed it. We said to ourselves, hey, this is a story. And the film went around the world. It got shown on TV in 40 countries. The whole nuclear power industry was set back. Yeah. 
Lovejoy told stories at the Tower Toppling celebration. He shared an anecdote about a newspaper publisher who served on the Nuclear Safety Commission created by Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis and how the publisher leaked documents to Lovejoy revealing that the utility had created an evacuation plan for the proposed nukes despite claiming that one didn't exist. He also told a story about a retired utility executive who called him and confirmed that the nuclear plants were going to cost way more than the company had forecast. I'll sum it up this way, he says. You saved the United States of America from the biggest bankruptcy in American history. (laughs) They were telling everybody that the nuclear plant in Montague was going to cost $2.35 billion. And he said, we were at $14 billion. And so I just want to thank you. (laughs) It was too expensive. They couldn't pay for it. There was no way they could pay for it. Sam Lovejoy is still adamantly opposed to nuclear power. These days, he and his wife Kathy live in Montague. There's a small pickup truck in their driveway with a bumper sticker that proudly declares no nukes. For the WBGO Journal, I'm John Kalish. Here at WBGO, we're very proud of our news department that has won many national awards from reporters like John Kalish, who you just heard, and for many of our in-depth interviews. Certainly hope you enjoy the upcoming interview that you're about to hear, and keep in mind that it all takes support for what we do in the news department. Call us right now at 800-499-9246 or make a pledge of support to your public radio station at wbgo.org slash support. Up from the Streets, a new documentary directed by Michael Murphy, examines New Orleans culture as seen through the lens of music. It will screen at the New Plaza Cinema at the Macaulay Honors College on Saturday, March 2nd at 12.15 in the afternoon. And joining us to talk about this exciting new doc is the host and executive producer of Up from the Streets, seven-time Grammy Award winner, two-time Oscar nominee, trumpeter, pianist, composer, Terrence Blanchard. Great to see you, Terrence. Hey, good to see you, Doug. You probably didn't know, but you were born on the very same day in the same year Mm. that I was. Oh, no kidding. March 13th, 1962 was a special day for Terrence and Doug. You were in New New Orleans, and I was in Pennsylvania. (laughs) You know, know, I thought you were going to say, like, Blue Mitchell. Blue Mitchell was born on the 13th, too. That's a little bit more important than than myself. <laughs> no, 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 it's all good. So look, I'm gonna look. You know, Roy Haynes is a is a Pisces too, and when Roy found out when my birthday was, he goes, "I know you, man. I know you." And he broke it down, bro. He just broke the whole thing down. So I know you, Doug. I got you. <laughs> Very good. I've always been excited to know that we shared the same birthday because I just have loved your work through the years. Up from the oh, streets yeah. features a great archived and new performances as well as interviews with the Neville brothers, Alan Toussaint, Dr. John, Louis Armstrong, Winter Marsalis, Bonnie Raitt, Robert Plant, Sting, Keith Richards, and many more. New Orleans, Mississippi River. This is where this music jazz was created. America's music. America's art form. You can tell that rock and roll came from there. Back then it was the devil's music. Those guys were punk rock. As punk rock as you possibly could be. This is New Orleans jazz music, and it will never die because the feeling that we get as performers when we play it is the greatest drug in the world. This was quite an undertaking, but obviously a project of love for Terrence Blanchard. Definitely it was. You know, when Michael Murphy came up to me with the idea, you know, I jumped at it because there was something that Herbie Hancock said after Hurricane Katrina that floored me. He said, you know, New Orleans has been the cultural center of the country for decades, for generations. When he said it, you know, it hit me and I went, you know what? We have been a a strong influential force in in the world of music. And, and what Mike is trying to do is to show how all of that came about and where it came from. Uh, that's why the term up from the streets 
so I was on board and I, you know, I, I, I felt very blessed to be able to showcase so many great minds and musical talents from this area. One of the things that, you know, I heard Michael Murphy talking about the doc and, and he said, you know, we've got one eye in the rear view mirror and the other eye moving forward. Our music and our culture is resilient and evolves. He said, you know, this isn't a museum piece, jazz no. in New Orleans. It's, it's no. vibrant right now. Can you address that? Well, yeah, well, that's the whole idea. I mean, a, a lot of times documentaries are dealing with, you know, something that has happened or, or taking a look back. And that's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to could, to show you what's, what the how the continuum is moving forward, you know. Um, so we do go back and look in the past and we, we kind of talk about, you know, how this music came about and how the culture itself needed to have ex a, a place to express itself. You know, and it, and it happened through dance and through music, through, you know, prose, you know, but music was the most profound, obviously. Um, and it's still going on. You know, that, that continuum is still developing. You know, it's interesting, you know, when I did the, I did the, uh, the music for, um, oh man, uh, the Broadway play, the Tennessee Williams play, uh, Street Hunting Desire, you know, and I told those folks, I said, even though it's a modern production, I said, you guys need to come down to New Orleans because some of the things that Tennessee Williams talked about in the book and in the original script was still going on. How you could be in your home in the French Quarter and hear music bubbling up from the streets, literally, you know. Um, and that's the beautiful thing about the documentary. We're paying homage to the past, but giving you a glimpse into the future. It's a city of moments. The thing about New Orleanians, is that we all know each other, even if we've never met. And it ain't just New Orleans musicians, it's New Orleans people. They would never say, how's your mother? They say, how your mom and them? Nobody says that but us. Good or bad is a family, the whole city. Where you from? <laughs> the street has the beat, and the beat embodies the rhythm, and the rhythm embodies the culture. We love our music. We love our heritage. That's the foundation of the gumbo. Is there a certain part that when you're watching this documentary touches you more than, than others? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, I'm not sure if there's a certain part, because for me, I look at all of the guys that have taken part of it, and um, I'm extremely proud, proud of everybody. You know, doesn't matter the musical genre. I think what makes me proud is that, you know, everybody in this documentary is into the arts and into music because they love it, you know, they, and they have something to say. And as a matter of fact, that was probably their reason, reasoning for being there. There was a bubbling up of, you know, of, 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 an, of a need to express oneself and people found different avenues, different musical styles to do that. But the yearning to, to, to talk about the pain and suffering was the same, you know, and that's the thing I think that touches me more than anything when I watch this thing, when I, when, you know, recording all of the bands that came into the studio, man, was ridiculous, you know, because that, you know, in different ways, they all had that same type of energy, you know, that, that, that power, majesty, you know, um, and that's what I hold on to when I watch this, because it's a fascinating look into how, you have these different musical styles in the city, but the core of what they're, they're dealing with comes from the same place, and that's the pain and suffering of this community. And, and let me just say that, through the pain and suffering, there's a joy, you know, and there's a celebratory nature to some of the things that we do, and you also hear that as well. Yeah, I recently spoke with the violin virtuoso uh, Itzhak Perlman, and he he mentioned the same kind of thing when he was playing Schindler's List, the theme from Schindler's List, and how everybody always wants to hear that and says how he is feels that we're so fortunate to have music because it cleanses the soul. Post-Katrina, the same thing for New Orleans. Your community rose up to great heights during that time. How did Katrina change Terrence Blanchard? Oh, man, and it made me more active. You know, there was there were so many things that that were occurring. I think the big frustration was how we were depicted, you know, in the news. You know, they call black people refugees was something that still sticks with me and it still hurts me, hurts me to my heart, hurts me to my core to hear that. You know, um, the other part of it, too, 
I didn't realize, but some friends told me, you know, they made me understand that, you know, they didn't understand the level of poverty that existed in New Orleans because they were always downtown or in the, you know, the, 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 the favorite parts of the city. Uh, they never saw some of the other things that were going on. That, that was a, a, a bit of a shock to the system as, as well, you know, and it turned me around in terms of like my activism, becoming more active and trying to help communities and trying to help young musicians learn to help them get out of certain situations, you know, because the other thing I, I realized too, after Hurricane Katrina, there, you know, there, it was such a traumatic thing that there were a lot of kids who probably didn't know how to voice what it was that they were going through. So for me, music was the thing. That's why we brought the Monk Institute to New Orleans and had our Monk kids go out into the middle schools and the high schools to help teach kids who wanted to learn how to play music. So many performances that I mentioned, new and old and up from the streets. If somebody came from you from a, a different country and said, Terrence, pick up your trumpet and play one song for us that represents New Orleans, what would that be? Ooh, that's a good question. That's, that's a very good question. You know, because you have all of the classic St. James Infirmary and all of those things that people, but for me, there's something about Amazing Grace that kind of, it's not something that's necessarily associated with New Orleans, but there's something about that melody and the one lyric that said, I once was blind, but now I see, you know, uh, speaks to a lot of things that occur in this city. You know, um, when you grow up in this city, you take all of this for granted. You just kind of think everybody else is like this. And it takes leaving, you know, to understand truly how special this place is. And that's the whole once was blind out, now I see thing for me, you know, um, because you start to realize this is a crown jewel, you know, in the world, because there's no place like this that this that I've been to, you know, on the planet. And, you know, I've I've had friends who come here, you know, and I always tell them, I say, you gotta you better be careful, man, because there's been a lot of people who've come here for vacations and never left. <laughs> you know, it can it can draw you in. Um, but that's Oh, man, that's just one of the big things about the city that I've always loved, its uniqueness. You're responsible for keeping New Orleans traditions and jazz itself in popular culture through movies, right? Through your opera, you know, mm -hmm. Champion, your most recent one, um, keeping us in touch with, you know, Griffith and, and, and things like that. You mm -hmm. love history. You bring it out. It's an, It's important to you. But when you have people like Sting and Keith Richards and Robert Plant, you can see a lot of people don't make that connection. But Charlie Watts, the late Charlie Watts, he would play mm -hmm. jazz more than anything else. People need to know this, don't they, Terrence? Well, I think, yeah, I think, well, I think it's always interesting to see how people develop and how where they come from, you know, because some people may not associate Sting, you know, with New Orleans. You know, some people didn't associate the Rolling Stones with the blues and Muddy Waters, you know. Um, but when you start to see how people who have developed their own style, you know, in different musical genres have been have been influenced by certain things here in the city, you know, you start to understand the true nature and the, and, and the value that the, that the, 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 the arts community has had throughout the world, you know. And it goes back to that Herbie Hancock statement about us being the, you know, the, 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 the heart and soul of the nation, you know, um, because I, I, I've seen it in so many ways, you know, there's so many musicians who are, who will be on tour staying. We just saw the Steely Dan uh, and the Eagles, uh, different types of bands, man, from jazz bands to blues bands, to rock and roll bands. They love coming here. They love playing here, you know, as a matter of fact, I had a I have a good a good friend of mine in the jazz world, very famous person, who she told me she said I took a gig in New Orleans just so I could hang out in New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you something certainly uh, about that. You yeah. are being honored throughout uh, this month, uh, retrospective of your incredible career. Mm -hmm. Who gets the credit for this love of history and this want to make sure that 
not only New Orleans, but things like Champion, the opera. Who gets the credit for sparking that desire to tell history and preserve it and to also look ahead to what it means to us? Man, there's, there's a host, you know, I thought about this one day and I get emotional when I think about it. Um, there's a host of people, unsung heroes, you know, that are responsible for this. You know, Martha uh, Francis, who's my very first piano teacher, uh, Miss uh, Louise Winchester, who started teaching me theory and had me doing ear training courses when I was 12 years old. You know, uh, Roger Dickinson, who started making me compose, made me write my first piano concerto when I was 16 years old, based off of a six-note tone row. And Roger would always ask me, what do you see yourself doing? And I would have 10 years from now, and I would have to give him answers. And I realized he was making me project, He, you know, uh, and he, he, he made me see a path by asking me those questions. And then my, also my father, man, you know, my father uh, loved music, loved operatic music, you know, was a baritone, sang with a group of black men that also loved opera. And when I was a kid, I thought they were some of the strangest black men on the planet because I didn't see those black men on television. I didn't see them in the news, you know what I mean? But these are guys that would get together every Wednesday and rehearse and then go around the city and do recitals, you know? So and it's all of those people, you know, who are responsible for this. And then, of course, you know, the Art Blakeys and the Herbie Hancocks and Wayne Shorters, all of those guys as well, you know. Um, but it starts at the core. And, and at the core of it were people who taught me, don't believe everything you see, you know, do your work, do it with integrity and, 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 and do it with a lot of love and compassion and hard work. Um, and that was taught to me from a very early age. Everything in New Orleans has a connection. There's been this lineage. DNA line from the old spirituals and the field songs to the jazz and the second lines, they're all children of the New Orleans culture. From the street to the studio, and from the studio straight through the speakers into my life. That music is designed to make us feel good and to make them feel good. That's what its purpose is. People need that especially now. The music is a vehicle for us to connect. Tell us about your family, the fact that you have stayed in New Orleans, even though you're spending a lot of time in New York these days because of the, the celebration of your music and the opera why you still live in new orleans well i wanted to be near my kids my two older kids you know they still live here my son um and who has two kids i'm a grandpa now i have two little boys um uh he's he's here my daughter's here they're my two younger daughters one is in brooklyn in new york and then the other one is in london um but when i came back to new orleans it reminded me of why you know i was in this um and listen, man, when I say this, I don't mean any disrespect to New York at all. But when I was in New York, most of the mu musicians talked to me about career goals. You know what I mean? Uh, getting a first record deal, touring, you know, publicity and all of that stuff. When I was in New Orleans, you know, the guys talked to me about music, you know, because they just loved it. They just, hey, man, did you hear what so-and-so is playing? Man, he played some crazy stuff, blah, 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 blah. Now, I found a community in New York that did that as well, but that wasn't the majority of what I experienced there. Um, so coming back here was like really a, a, a blessing because I could be near my kids, and then it was also a reminder of, of where I came from. Someone once asked me, who would I like to interview that's no longer with us? And my answer has always been the same. It's been Louis Armstrong. And the reason oh, yeah. for the reason for that is, Terrence, 
I believe he was so ahead of his time. As you know, in the museum, they have all the recordings of there at the dinner table. He recorded everything. He was so aware of so many things. What is your basic synopsis of Louis Armstrong? What has he meant to you? What has he meant to New Orleans? What has he meant to the trumpet? Um, he was brilliant because his 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 music playing, uh, playing the trumpet was way ahead of its time, as we know. You know, his arrangements, those arrangements were so forward thinking, you know, that they still hold up to this day. Um, but I think the most important thing that made him brilliant to me was having all of that brilliance. He also understood socially where he was, you know, in the time that he was growing up because he kept certain things to himself. So that would allow the music to be his musical. That would, the music would, it would allow the music to be his statement, you know, and as a result, in the coming years that came after the the country started to really grow, we started to look back him and thinking that he was unaware of what was happening in the country. And it couldn't have been anything further from the truth. He was totally aware. And what made him brilliant to me is by being totally aware, he knew what mind feels to stay away from. You know, now, granted, had he been raised in today's society, I think he probably would have been a very, very vocal leader. You know, I think he would have, you know, been out on the forefront of dealing with social issues. Because when you listen to those recordings of him talking, you can tell he was like he, very aware. But he knew by being aware, I'm not going to play that game so you can take this away from me. I'm going to play it another way. You know, this music is going to be something that's on such a high level that it's going to set the standard for American culture. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, that lets you know how far-reaching this man's music was. When you were working with Michael Murphy on Up From The Streets, was there a moment where you said, Michael, I know, I know you, this is, you know, this is your project. I know you've done these interviews, but we have to include this. Oh yeah, I mean there were there were certain I can't even remember what they were, but we had kind of conversations like that for sure. And that was a cool thing about working with Mike and Solicitor. You know, uh, Robin and myself had a great working relationship with them because we could talk about anything, you know. And we had some tough conversations, you know, just about race and society and how music played a role in that, and how music was affected by that, you know. And Mike was open to all of it. You can see my entire interview with Terrence Blanchard on the WBGO Facebook page. The 96th Academy Awards, the Oscars, will take place next Sunday, March 10th, in Hollywood. And love them, hate them, or ignore them, there never seems to be a shortage of things to say about them. Our film critic, Harlan Jacobson, has more. Given how the previous Bellwether Award groups have gone, Oppenheimer, with the most Oscar nominations at 13, will likely dominate the night. Christopher Nolan's film is the conventionally ambitious film of the lot, but with the biggest reach. Character study on a mega-budget scale, the film follows the path taken by J. Robert Oppenheimer and the conflicts felt all along the way in birthing the atom bomb. Applied science versus research, career ambition for an Arabist Jew versus dread about the nature of the risks involved, then about the destruction involved, and death on a mass scale. In the background is the metronome. It's a race against time, and Werner von Braun in Germany, accompanied by multiple doubts, then elation over the win and the victory. In Los Alamos, it was easier to be patriotic until the bomb dropped. That's a lot of acting for any actor. Killian Murphy as Oppenheimer finally sinks into a post-war catatonic retreat into something like the horror with which Joseph Conrad ended Heart of Darkness. In an hour-long coda, but very much on point about the treachery of our current congressional politics, Oppenheimer is ruined by the Red Scare, created by the Republican Senate to take political power. Destroyed by the totality of it all, he can't defend himself in committee investigation. It's a lot of picture, Oppenheimer. It has a lot of reach and big canvas ambition, which many say director Nolan is guilty of rather than good at. 
I appreciate Nolan's huge reach, including Dunkirk, The Dark Knights, Inception, all a long way from his riveting micro-scale memento with Guy Pierce racing to stay ahead of his memory loss in 2000. And nothing else this year matches Oppenheimer. Not American fiction, which I found in Toronto and loved the way it carved up the present moment over cultural and racial authenticity. Not Barbie, which Dianu made a billion dollars. And that was enough. Not New York's patron saint of film, Martin Scorsese, and his Killers of the Flower Moon, in part because Marty enjoys sacred cow status. What does it say about critics' group that the New York Critics Circle voted it best film of the year, and the Boston film critics named the Boston-based story of the holdovers as the best picture of the year? In a year of full of good films, Oppenheimer deserves to win best film and director actor for Killian Murphy over the compelling Coleman Domingo, the best part of Rustin, and supporting actor for Robert Downey Jr. over everyone else in his category. wife, Kitty, played by the barely heralded but superb Emily Blunt, rises to the occasion in a stinging moral rebuke to Washington. Blunt's is the best performance of those nominated for supporting actress this year, but she'll likely lose to divine Joy Randolph, who's both enormously ingratiating and writing a stereotype as the grumpy black mama cook and voice of normalcy in Alexander Payne's prep school teacher student mashup in the whole world. Sir, I don't understand. That's glaringly apparent. I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can. Every year at Barton Academy, students, faculty, and staff depart the campus for a two-week winter break. But there are always an unfortunate few who have nowhere to go for the holidays. They're known as the holdovers. Mr. Hunnam. Hello, Mary. I heard you got stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that? You know, he used to be a student, right? Yeah, that's why he knows how to inflict maximum pain on them. Oh. I thought all the Nazis were hiding in Argentina. Stifle it, Tully. You just earned yourself a detention, sir. Being here with you is already one big detention. I can make good cases for Maestro and poor things in any other year, but whatever the expanded membership of the Academy has nearly doubled in the last few years, the best picture Oscar won't be a geographical. I expect Oppenheimer will also win its share of the Craft Award for cinematography and sound. It's a toss-up when it comes to adapted screenplay, and things could tilt to any of the four other heavyweight contenders. Poor Things, American Fiction, and Zone of Interest, more so than Barbie. Best Original Screenplay is also a toss-up between Anatomy of a Fall and The Holdovers, but I can't tell you how much I dislike Todd Haynes' tedious May-December, which is pure soap opera. Downtown, in the discrimination cinema entries where women characters command center stage this year, I would give Best Actress to Emma Stone for her brilliant physical and line-reading acrobatics and her Bride of Frankenstein turn in Poor Things, or to Carrie Mulligan for her Felicia Bernstein in Maestro about mid-century marriage. Mulligan stole the film from Bradley Cooper as Lenny by being cool to the touch. The Zeitgeist and the Academy Seemed primed, however, for a first-time actress nominee, Lily Gladstone, in possibly the only award Killers of the Flower Moon will take home. Watch, now that I open my big mouth, it'll sweep everything. And I'm Harlan Jacobson. What a trooper Harlan Jacobson is. He's a little under the weather this week, but he will be heading off to the 31st South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, and we'll report from there what sticks to the ribs in barbecue country in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. If you enjoy this program and the news program you hear on your public radio station, WBGO, please take a moment to support it now. 1-800-499-9246. 
You choose the financial value of this music and information in your life. You can also make a pledge of support online from anywhere in the world at WBGO.org. And thanks, and stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz and blues station, WBGO and WBGO.org.